coming up on today's episode of the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast. And I just kept bothering them for years and years. You know, I would I would say, okay, it's October. If I was food editor, here's what I'd be doing for the last four months of the year, three months of the year, in the food attention season, as we like to call it. And right. uh, eventually just wore them down. I think I just wore them down. <laughs> Good that's job. How, that's how that happened, you know. So they come into the class thinking, well, this is going to be fun because we're just going to talk about recipes and cookbooks and things like that. And then they're very surprised. When we, do a, when we do a week on diversity in food writing, food writing is activism, and we look at some serious issues. When I wrote for the Times that the stories were kind of, you know, the kitchen warts and all. Like if something went wrong, I always said it went wrong. You know, I never wanted right. to be like, there's just so much, there's so much out there where everything turns out perfect, right? Right. And I did the opposite a couple months ago. I way oversalted a dish and posted the food photos and everyone's commenting, oh, that looks so beautiful. I bet it was so good. And I'm thinking, you don't know, I resulted it. <laughs> Coming to you from St. Petersburg, Florida, you're listening to the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast, the show that's the authority on where to eat in St. Pete. Here are your hosts, Kevin Godby and Lori Brown. Hi, I'm Kevin Godby. And I'm Lori Brown. Thank you for tuning in today. Welcome to the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast, the podcast that's it when it comes to restaurants and food information in St. Pete. And be sure to check out our website, stpetersburgfoodies.com. There you'll find great information, including restaurant reviews, the largest St. Pete happy hour list ever created and kept updated, and information on the newest restaurants in town. We are locals that live in downtown St. Pete, and we've been eating our way through this town for years, so you don't have to, but you should. We have a new episode every Tuesday. Just hit the subscribe button, and you'll get notified when an episode is ready for download. And then you can listen to them anytime you want, like on your morning jog or commute to work. On today's show, our featured guest is Janet Keeler from USF St. Pete. Janet is a lifelong food journalist and teaches food writing and photography in the Department of Journalism and Digital Communication. At the top of the show, we have Abby with her recipe for an elevated twist on a BLT. We We have have a great great show, show, so stick stick around. One of our favorite places to go eat in St. Pete is Engine Number no. 9. They've been a staple in downtown St. Pete coming up on seven years, and they are famous for their unique and tasty burger creations. As a matter of fact, they are on the St. Pete Foodies list of best burgers in St. Pete. They also made the best hot dogs list, the best chilies, and the best wings in St. Pete. Aside from the food, Engine Number no. 9 is a great sports bar with lots of TVs, beer, and wine. And you can even get a regular old cheeseburger, too, so you can bring your non-adventurous eater friends. Check out Engine Number no. 9 at the corner of MLK and 1st Avenue North in downtown St. Pete. Their burgers can't be beat. St. Pete is all about local, and this year we celebrate a local legend's 25th anniversary. Roland Oates Market and Cafe was founded in July of 94 by Bert Swain and Larry Schwartz. From the beginning, Roland Oates has made a commitment to provide St. Pete customers with the finest quality organic whole foods, nutritional supplements, and body care products at the most reasonable prices possible. And now they have a South Tampa location too. We go there for many items, but they are the only place that we go to buy our raw probiotics and other supplements. They have the best organic whole food selection in town, and on the flip side of that, they also offer a fantastic selection of wines and an unparalleled selection of local craft beer. Rollin' Oats has a cafe, Open Daily, which offers delicious sandwiches, burgers, soups, salads, bowls, wraps, entrees, and fresh-made smoothies, along with a variety of prepared and packaged take-home meals located in the market itself. Do you pride yourself with supporting local businesses? Well, put your money where your mouth is and get on into Rollin' Oats today. Rollin' Oats St. Pete is located at 2842 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Street North. And in South Tampa, you'll find them at 1021 North McDill Avenue. 
Check them out on the web at rollinoats.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N oats.com. And Rollin' Oats offers online ordering with curbside pickup. Please welcome, with our monthly recipe straight from the St. Pete Foodies Test Kitchen, Abby Allen. Welcome, Abby. Hello. 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 And we are not only thrilled to have you creating monthly recipes for us, but we are also quite pleased to have this segment sponsored by Rollin' Oats. And everything in this recipe can be found at Rollin' Oats. So you tell them what we have, Abby. Okay, this is a good one. So we are in the midst of peak tomato season. So we're embracing that fully with a summer BLT with basil mayo. Nice. Very nice. Yes. Peak tomato season is basically right now. So like late summer to early fall is kind of the time. So like, you know, August, September, basically. So um, definitely taking advantage of that. And I've done tons of reading and research as I know you both, you know, follow along closely with Bon Appetit. And um, so I pulled some things off of their website, which really highlights about, you know, embracing tomatoes during this time and how to really make tomatoes be them their best selves. So I know we talked a lot about salt and you know you guys are familiar with salt, fat, acid, heat. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um yeah, so Molly Boz, you guys know who Molly Boz is in the Texas kitchen up on appetite. Yes. The blonde. Mm-hmm. Yes. Love her. And she states that salt highlights tomatoes sweetness. And it draws out the water, which intensifies the tomato's natural flavor. So what mm-hmm. you should do and what I do in this recipe is salt the tomatoes ahead of time. Let them just kind of hang out, marinate in their juices, and it really just makes them that much better. So, it's a really cool trick that we do with uh, steak, we, too. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Salt I've definitely been embracing tomato season. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Been embracing tomato season, especially the beautiful heirlooms we've been able to get oh, around here lately. Oh and I just make... I make tomato cucumber salads and just salt the hell out of them. Oh, so and that's like all you need is just like good salt. And oh my gosh, it's amazing what it, what mm-hmm. it can do. So, Yeah, it's funny. When when you first said, hey, it's tomato season. Let's do something with that. My first thought was she's been reading Bon Appetit too. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. All the time, religiously, even in the midst of all the chaos that's been happening there the past couple of months, I still love Bon Appetit and everything they have to say. So, And... Do we also have, uh, what else, what else is on the sandwich? Okay. So we have those fabulous tomatoes that are salted. We have Dave's killer bread. Um, we, you, I use the, the good seed bread for this one. And actually ever since we did the recipe, I believe it was last year at this time with the, the peach and tomato toast. And mm-hmm. that was like the first time that I had had Dave's killer bread. We have right. had a lo- we've had a loaf or two in our freezer, like, every day ever since like we swear by it that's the bread we use it's awesome we use their english muffins i mean it's it's great bread as you guys know and yeah you were the one that introduced us to that and same thing we always have it yep yes. i have some right now and funny yes. the other day i i made uh, like an open-faced fried egg sandwich for breakfast and posted it on facebook and i and of course i said it's on dave's killer bread the comments blew up everybody just talking about dave's killer bread how much yes. they love it. it's, it's definitely it's- killer <laughs> It is killer. It is. And what we do with this, or what I do with this in this recipe is, um, so I, but I use Vital Farms butter, um, their grass fed butter, salted and unsalted. I think this one I used salted. It melted a couple of tablespoons of that and then brushed the, each side of the bread with the butter, put it in mm-hmm. the oven for like um, 15 minutes or so, get it nice and crispy. And it's so crispy, crunchy. It's just like, oh, delicious. You know, you get like a, like a BLT or a sandwich sometimes in the, Tomatoes or the juices like make the toast turn into like soggy, which is mm-hmm. so undesirable. Mm-hmm. So, but the Dave's Killer, I love it. Gets nice and crispy and crunchy. So yeah, so we have Dave's Killer, and then for the mayo, I used um, Sir Kensington's classic mayo. It's non-GMO, um, which of course is from Rolling Oats. And then um, in the mayo, I used uh, basically like a whole like a bunch of fresh basil. Mm-hmm. So. Like a half cup mayo to like a half cup ish of the fresh basil. I throw in the food processor to really break things down, and oh my gosh, the flavor is so good. I spread that on both sides of the bread. Oh, I'm sorry, not both sides. On 
both pieces of bread on you know the inside <laughs> yeah that'd be funny <laughs> on both sides yeah that would be that would be a little much i mean i love mayo don't get me wrong but that would be a little much so we get the bread the mayo the basil the tomatoes and then the bacon um so we use neiman ranch applewood smoked bacon of course rolling oats they have several different kinds of neiman ranch i think maybe four or five but i always choose the neiman ranch and i get bacon from there and the key to great bacon, um, well, at least for us, we love doing it in the oven on parchment mm-hmm. for like 16 to 18 minutes. Um, I know, Laura, you don't you don't like crispy bacon, right? You like it softer. Is that correct? I like I like it softer, but we still bake it. Um, but I've never used yet. parchment. What's the the use the reason for the parchment? I I, I really you know I you know when I first started dating Mike almost six years ago he actually introduced me to that because I would just throw it on a pan whatever in the oven and he's like no the parchment is the key to the crispiness I don't know the science oh, cool. behind it really but I saw that Food Fifty Two they did a segment recently on you know different ways that people cook the bacon they said the crispiest result just was with parchment in the oven at like four hundred degrees for like twenty minutes cool. good tip. Yeah, so that's Except how we me. do. Yeah, yeah. If you don't like crispy, yeah, I mean, maybe still stay away from that. But um, yeah. So that's the bacon, and then for the lettuce. I mean, you can use really any kind of lettuce. I prefer to use butter lettuce, nice crisply. Mm-hmm. So Rolling Oats has really nice Pete's um, Living Organic butter lettuce. Um, it's mm-hmm. nice and crisp and crunchy, and it's you know it's it's delicious. So and it, and it stays fresh for a long time too. Yeah, we buy the Living Organic now as well. Yes, yeah, we love it. it. Lasts so long, and it's it great does. for yes, it's great for sandwiches. You pull the leaf right off and layer it on, and and there you go. So, mm-hmm. so that's the anatomy of the summer BLT with your your basil mayo. And the basil yeah. mayo, I state in the recipe like about a half cup. But I mean, you you don't have to use obviously a half cup for all your you know two sandwiches. It's great to keep it in the fridge for a week and mm-hmm. use it for an array of other things. So. What, what kind of tomato did you use? So the tomatoes I got from Rolling Oats. So I got a couple of different kinds. So I got beef steak because they're larger. But I ultimately liked the color of the vine ripe tomatoes. And then actually when we made it yesterday, I had some heirlooms on hand. I'm like, all right, we'll try out some heirlooms too. And of course, the heirlooms are so good. I didn't find any heirlooms at Rolling Oats. Right. But you have heirlooms definitely use those if not and you're getting everything from rolling oats i recommend the vine ripe tomatoes okay. and i read an interesting tip too um bon appetit um when i read the segment about the salting of tomatoes and such it says pick up the tomato and like the denser and heavier it feels the more ripe and and better the tomato is basically it's all uh, those juices in there so uh, another another bon appetit pro tip so cool and yeah. we also have uh our uh, friend and wine expert, Ken Smith, wrote in a recommendation when I told him the uh, recipe. He says, I know I've been recommending a lot of rosé lately. Just underscores how versatile this grape is. Love the Whispering Angel Rosé from Provence. Full and lush with a dry, smooth finish. Exudes rose petals, strawberries, and coriander. Lovely mineral notes to offset the bacon and mayo. Simply delightful. Who doesn't want that? A, a BLT and a juicy glass of rosé. Yeah. Right? Right. Yes. Yeah. Totally. And again, we want to thank Roland Oats for sponsoring the monthly recipe, Abby Allen for creating it, and Ken Smith for doing the wine pairing. Buen provecho, y'all. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, guys. We will be right back with Janet Keeler. Ramen is the ultimate comfort food, and Booyah Ramen on the 900 block of Central Avenue is my go-to. It's so freaking good. The broth is like a silky blanket to warm up your mouth. And the hearty proteins, or just mushrooms for vegetarians, it'll have you saying, ooh, mommy, the umami is making my eyes roll back in my head. My favorites are the pork belly and the short rib. Mmm. And then there's the noodles. O-M-G. Go get the best ramen in St. Pete at Booyah Ramen at 911 Central Avenue in the Edge District of downtown St. Pete. Do ya, Booyah? Our guest today is an instructor and coordinator for the Food Writing and Photography Certificate Program in the Department of Journalism and Digital Communication 
at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. Please welcome Janet Keeler. Welcome, Janet. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you today. You've been doing this. We had uh, uh, someone that, that you know, Chris Sherman, on last week, and he's done a lot of stuff for a lot of years in this area, and so have you. And you have a master's degree in journalism and media studies. You're working on your doctoral in education development. And prior to you being at USF, you worked in daily newspaper journalism for 35 years, 22 years at the Tampa Bay Times and as the paper's food and travel editor. And you were the food editor there when Chris Sherman was the food critic. And at that time, it was the St. Petersburg Times. Right. Well, I, I'm exhausted just listening to all that. <laughs> I know, me too. <laughs> it's like, how do you do all that stuff? So, and you even had a recent contribution to the Times on your homemade hummus, which we'll come back to after we get a little more background on you. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Where are you originally from, Janet? Well, so I'm a Navy brat. So I, um, <laughs> I, I say now that I'm from California because we lived there uh, for a long time after my father retired, but he was in the, in, in the Navy for 30 years. So we moved around quite a bit. So I was born in Puerto Rico and oh, wow. we lived in Tennessee. We lived in Southern California, uh, Northern California, different places like that. So, and in, in fact, he had two tour of duties in, in Puerto Rico. So I was there as a, as a brand new person and then uh, back from uh, fourth to seventh grade, I think. So anyway, I moved around quite a bit. Where'd you go to college? I don't know how I said that that way, Kalu. <laughs> Where'd you go to college? I did my undergraduate uh, journalism degree at the at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, California. Oh, nice. And how did you make your way to St. Pete? Well, like we often do, you know, there was a there was a breakup, you know, and I thought, well, this state's <laughs> not big enough for the both of us. I lived in Northern <laughs> California then, and uh, I had a friend who I'd worked with at, the, at a paper in California, and he worked at the St. Petersburg Times. I called him and I said, wow, what do you think? He said, yeah, send your stuff. So that's mm. how I ended up here. And I moved here uh, just about a month after Hurricane Andrew hit in 1992. Oh, My wow. friends in California were like, you're not still going, are you? I thought, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm still going. I have a job. And uh, so I was going to come for a couple of years. That was 1992. Stay for a and, few and years. that was to, to St. Petersburg. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Stay here for a couple of years, get some experience at this nice newspaper, and go back to California. Hopefully, get a job at the San Francisco Chronicle. So, what? 28 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, we're glad you are. Thank you. Thank you. So, when you studied journalism uh, back then, did they have studies in food journalism? Uh, absolutely not. When so that was the that was the the. Uh, mid to late 70s. So we're talking all the president's men era. We went to, to journalism school mostly to figure out how to take down, how to take down uh, corrupt politicians and things like that in hard news. And if you wrote features, they really wrote features, but you were slightly maybe considered a little bit weak, you know. So uh, I grew up in that more hard news background, but really had no idea that anybody wrote about food. And even then, food writing was just starting to come into its, its own. You know, before that, it was really women's pages and recipes from different food manufacturers and that kind of thing. We didn't really get into food journalism yet. So I really right. had no idea. I did like to cook, though, and I started cooking a lot in college. So I, I, I eventually figured out, oh, you can put these things together. But it took me a while. Right. right. It was like good housekeeping back then was the big thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really wasn't what you would call necessarily food journalism. There was a lot of stories about recipes and, you know, what you're going to make for holidays. And, and eventually I did write a lot of those kind of stories because that was kind of my lane. I really liked that. You know, mm -hmm. I, I like the, the feeling of, you know, being being welcomed into somebody's home to help them figure out their holidays and things like that. I did like that. But we did more. I did more sort of documentary stories where you actually were out in the community talking. Right. Mm -hmm. And then what about, uh, you know, being a food critic or a restaurant reviewer? When, when did that kind of come about? So I never did that. I never did restaurant criticism. So I was a food okay. editor and you mentioned, you mentioned Chris Sherman. So I, I, I worked with him for a while. And then when he left, I worked with Laura Riley for a while. So oh, I worked cool. with them. And so I edited, I edited critics, but I never really was one. Ah. Okay. Gotcha. You're in journalism. And then did, was it like, did you say, hey, can I write about food? Is that how did you, how did you transition into that? 
So I actually transitioned from like hard news into features first. And in California, Northern California, worked at a smaller newspaper and I was the features editor there. And of course, when you're at a small newspaper, you kind of, are, you know, and you're in charge of every every feature section of the week. So right. the feature section was part of that. So I started kind of doing a little bit of that. I, I worked at the uh, a, a paper, the paper in Las Vegas, the review journal for a while. And I was very good friends there with the food editor. So occasionally I would do little stories there. But at that point, I was on the copy desk. I was the international, national, world wire editor. So um, I always was kind of dabbling in it. And when I came to the Times, I was uh, hired as copy editor and then eventually moved again over into features and was the features copy desk chief. So I oversaw all the sections that were put out by that, uh, by the features department. And at that time, there was about 11 of them. There was a lot of, there was a lot of sections every week. Mm-hmm. But I kept kind of dabbling in it and cooking more and doing stories. And then I just kept bothering them for years and years. You know, I would I would say, okay, it's October. If I was food editor, here's what I'd be doing for the last four months of the year, three months of the year, in the food attention season, as we like to call it. And right. uh, eventually just wore them down. I think I just wore them down. <laughs> <laughs> Good that's job. How, that's how that happened, you know. So You are with us, actually, on our two-year anniversary of the podcast. Well, congratulations. Thank, Thank you. you. And you are no stranger to podcasting yourself. You know, Lori and I were just on the Zest podcast two weeks ago, and you are a frequent frequent contributor to their show. Yeah, that's been a lot of that's been a lot of fun. You know, that's uh, uh, Delia the Delia Cologne, the producer of the Zest. She worked at the time, so I've known her. I've known her for a while, and they had contacted me when they were first starting it to uh, ask to interview me. I can't even remember the topic. I don't know what it was. And then I finally just said, well, how about if I, how, how about if I'm just a contributor? Because I was trying to figure out a way to kind of get more into talking about cookbooks and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. um, it, it, I just kind of wheedled my way into that, too. I'm always doing that. But I teach a food podcasting class at, at US of St. Pete. And oh, wow. So, we should, maybe we should take that. <laughs> I think you probably do pretty good at, in it right now. It's, <laughs> you have a lot of experience. But what they do is they spend a lot of time listening to food podcasts and getting an mm. idea of what they're about. And then, uh, and then they, they produce their own podcast and they do about three episodes of it. And those are kind of, they're, they're kind of fun when they That's do cool. those. So I wanted a little bit more experience myself. So that, that got me going on the zest. So for the, for that podcast course, when they produce their own, uh, shows, is that, uh, anywhere public to be heard? Actually, they usually end up somewhere. They usually end up on either, um, YouTube or, I'm trying to think where else they end up. iTunes, sorry, YouTube or iTunes. They do, they do usually they usually put put them there. So there's some kind of fun ones. Did they create an iTunes account for each individual one, or is there one like for the school? Yeah, no, they usually do an individual one, but that's actually not a bad idea for me to kind of get them all together. The yeah, it'd be fun. Pr- some of them are pretty good. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I did too. I just i I started listening to a bunch of food podcasts prior to doing this when I knew I wanted to do it. And one of my favorites was Bon Appetit. And I was mm-hmm. like, I want, I want our sound to be like their sound. And so, yeah, that was one of my inspirations and how I learned that. So on the Zest podcast, when you contribute, you're the cookbook slash cooking commentator. And I loved it. I thought it was hilarious when you used a clip from Schitt's Creek about folding in the <laughs> cheese. That's one of my favorite scenes. Next step is to fold in the cheese. What does that mean? What does fold in the cheese mean? He folds it in. I, I understand that, but how, how do you fold it? Do you fold it in half like a piece of paper and drop it in the pot, or what do you do? But you'd use that to make a point about a cooking saying that I think was something like, if you can read, you can cook, and right. you wanted to dispel that. Yes, I've always, I've always disliked that because I think it sort of marginalizes the skills that go into cooking. Like mm-hmm. it's, just, it's just simply reading and doing it. And right. of course, that... That scene from Schitt's Creek when they're when uh, Moira and David are, are arguing about folding in the cheese and what does it mean to fold in the cheese? Don't tell me again to fold it in. You know, so it's such a funny scene because I think that is actually one one technique that is is kind of confusing to people. Right. But it did make me think about that idea of like if you can read, you can cook. I mean, I just don't think that's true. I think it's it's it takes time. It takes it takes practice. You know, you wouldn't hand a necessarily a sheet of music to a musician and say, okay, play this perfect the first time. You know, sometimes they have to play it through a few times. So yeah, I thought that was a, it was, it made me think a lot about, about the way we, we consider cooking. 
And through my work at the Times, you know, we used to do a we used to do a thing around Thanksgiving every year called Wishbone You, and we would get a bunch of hapless cooks together, you know, like the worst cooks in the Tampa Bay area, <laughs> and 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 take them over <laughs> to um to a, to a, a cooking school, and they would they would make part of the Thanksgiving dinner, and they had to write in a little letter saying, you know, why they were so bad or why they needed this help, and it just amazed me the things that people would say, like. They don't really use the recipes and they don't understand why you have to put things in in a certain order. For instance, if you're making cookies or, you know, baking or something. So they just throw everything right. in at once and then they would be just incredulous that it turned out so bad. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> oh my God. I, so there's a skill there. It's not just reading. Right, right. right. Yeah, baking is so right. precise too. Yeah. Yeah, and we're, I mean, we're still learning stuff. I mean, you know, I say that, you know, I was cooking when I was, when I was like six years old, I was making chili and cooking eggs and but now i'm like we're learning new stuff and actually right now i'm taking there's an online course courses and a collection of lessons and courses called ruby.com it's r-o-u-x-b-e and doing that also we like to watch a lot of like the cooking competition shows and stuff and we we learn a lot of stuff from that and right now we're watching master chef junior i don't know if you've ever watched that but wow that's amazing how do those kids learn how to do all that how how are they so good crazy right i know and that there was a one little girl going i've been cooking since i was two i'm like i don't even (laughs) remember what i did when i was two (laughs) yeah right yeah Hey, Janet, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about uh, some of the stuff at uh, USF and a whole bunch of other things. We will be right back. Hey, foodies. Do you know about the Zest podcast? If you're listening to us, you should be listening to them, too. They're part of the Tampa NPR station, WUSF 89.7. On the Zest, you'll learn new recipes, baking tips, and barbecue secrets. You'll hear about what's ripe, what's growing, and what's in season. The Zest Podcast is hosted by Robin Sussingham, an award-winning reporter and producer who's also an avid home cook and baker. Robin's a native Floridian and has been searching out flavors and the fascinating stories behind them from Key West to Pensacola. Learning to care for a sourdough starter and learning to bake sourdough breads really speaks to people in a very deep way. It's part of our collective history and we're getting back to our roots and our self-sufficiency. Just like us, the Zest podcast has interviews with chefs and restaurateurs and talks about food and recipes covering the Tampa Bay area and throughout Florida. It's what we listen to when we're not doing our own show. Check out the Zest podcast at thezestpodcast.com. Hey, Lori, have you ever been to Noble Crust? I have. What do you like there? Pork belly, pimento cheese, and fried green tomatoes are my favorite. Oh, yeah, I love that one, too. They actually call it the FGBLT. It's fried green tomatoes, pork belly glazed with a Tabasco honey sauce and pimento cheese. Mm -hmm. And it's the first item on the menu, so you can't miss it. And I think they should actually call it the OMG. Yeah, you've said that before. The chicken marsala is really good, too. It has chicken and chicken sausage, criminy mushrooms, and four cheese grits. It's so delicious. I love that they mix classics from the American Deep South and Italy. Noble Crust is famous for their fried chicken. I love it. Yeah, and the eggplant parmesan is out of this world. When we do a best eggplant parm list, it'll definitely be on there. Yes, it will. Speaking of lists, Noble Crust made six of them recently. Best Italian, Best Casual Dining, Best Pizza, Best Bloody Marys, Best Meatballs, and, believe it or not, Best Salads. Ooh, can I tell you another one of my favorite items? Yeah. The spaghetti and meatballs. It's oh, so good. man, you're not kidding. You know what? They have a brunch on Saturdays and Sundays starting at 10.30, which I love. And the deviled eggs are to die for. Let's go to Noble Crust right now. I'm in. Let's do it. We are back! We are back! And we are back with Janet Keeler currently the instructor for food writing and photography at USF St. Pete. And we, as we were talking about earlier, uh, Janet, you know, when you studied journalism, there was no such thing as uh, studies of food journalism. Right. How cool is it that you guys have that there? And how long has that been? Is it, is it still fairly new? I think we started our first classes. We started in 2014. Yeah, okay. 2014. And in fact, you know, you mentioned earlier that I'm getting my, um, my doctorate in, in education through USF. 
and that my my dissertation is is about uh, well, it's called uh, feasting on words. What university students learn when they study food writing. So I'm going through all the you know almost 800 pieces of work that they coursework that they've done to just try to put this thing together. So it is it is a neat program, and I the the way I approach it, I look at it a little bit more as cultural studies. You know, they usually come into the class. And in a, in a journalistic way, we're looking at we're looking at journalistic food writing. They come into the class thinking, well, this is going to be fun because we're just going to talk about recipes and cookbooks and things like that. And then they're very surprised when we do a when we do a week on diversity in food writing. Food writing is activism, and we look at some serious issues uh, that that food writers, food or journalists, are writing using food to to write about around the world. So it, it, that's kind of an uh, an eye opener for them. Yeah, food writing as activism. That sounds interesting. Well, yeah, you know, there's a lot of um, few years ago, the the Associated Press won a Pulitzer Prize for their their report of uh, people that were being held in cages in shrimp farming in Southeast Asia, and that the the they were essentially enslaved, and that shrimp that's wow. being harvested there is ending up on our tables. So there, there's, wow. there's, there's things to uh, write about in food. You know, you, there's a lot of talk about food deserts, the idea of food deserts and writing about that is kind of a form of activism starts to solve some problems when, when light is, is shed on those issues. Right, mm-hmm. right. Do you do any studies on uh, like recipes or cookbooks? Uh, through the classes? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. We don't, we don't, we don't do so many recipes. You know, I kind of, I kind of got away from that a little bit because I wanted them, since it's a journalism, you know, it's embedded in the, in the journalism program to, to really look at that kind of writing. But we definitely look at cookbooks. We definitely look at cookbooks, and they, and they read some uh, memoir and that kind of thing too. Yeah, because a couple, I guess it was a couple years ago, maybe we had an idea to do like a St. Pete Foodies recipe book or cookbook, and we started working on it. And we're like, okay. This is actually a thing. This is like something I realized I don't really know how to do this. I have to figure this out. <laughs> and then, and then of course, other people that we know came out with cookbooks. And then somebody else that, that we know that has like nine cookbooks said, it's a lot of work. You don't make a lot of money. And we kind of, we kind of got talked out of it. Yes. <laughs> but maybe we'll get back to it one day. But you also, you had, you authored Cookielicious, 150 Fabulous Recipes to Bake and Share. That's a lot of recipes. It was a lot of recipes. And that book, um, that book grew out of, a, of, a, of the annual Christmas cookie issue that we used to do in the Times. I think we did that for about 13 years, maybe, or so. And so I used uh, those recipes that readers wrote in. We used some of those. And then we also um, came up with some, some of our own so that, you know, so that we would get up to 150. But, you know, uh, it's interesting because people sent in those recipes for for Christmas, but many of them weren't really Christmas recipes. So I was able to kind of divide them <laughs> up into, you know, into different categories. But that was a, that was a, you know, that was kind of a labor of love. I mean, your friend is right about the cookbooks. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work and people don't make a ton of money off of those. I mean, if that's not really something, I mean, if you're, if you're Ina Garden or the pioneer woman, you know, you're doing good. You're going to, you know, <laughs> right. they always have the top selling cookbooks of the year because of the name recognition and, and the built-in uh, marketing because of the television shows. Right. But for most people, it's it's a ton of work. and Well, it's a lot of work for them, too, I'm sure. But you have to, you know, anymore you have to find a food photographer. You, you know, a lot of that you're paying for yourself. It's, it's, a, it's a tough, it's a tough, uh, tough world, though, though they are hanging on big time. You know, it, cookbook sales are doing really well. Everyone thought, oh, people are just going to get stuff online. Right. But, People love cookbooks. Right. These days. Yeah. I mean, every, I, I guess everybody's doing a lot more cooking these days. I know we are. <laughs> we definitely are. Yeah. And yeah, speak, speaking of which, you, uh, I saw you had posted something. I didn't get to read it, but you do have a recent contribution, as I mentioned before, to the Times, the Tampa Bay Times, on your homemade hummus. Tell us about that. Well, I kind of, uh, my husband and I took a trip to Israel in 2018. We went with um, uh, St. Paul's Catholic Church that's here in uh, is in St. Petersburg, and I think we're the only non-Catholics on the trip. But my husband always wanted to go, and and he's a he's a, he's a uh, acquaintance of um, Monsignor Gibbons at the church. So we ended up going, and we had a great time. And we ate hummus, of course, everywhere we went. And I just didn't realize that little trip was going to spark that interest in in homemade hummus. I'd really never done that before, and a lot of people do it. It's not you know, it's not all that particularly uh, different. But right. So I've been. I've been uh, 
in the last year, I've been doing a lot of mailing mail order of tahini, you know, so they've been, the Amazon people have been dropping all kinds of tahini off here. I'm sure they're wondering what's <laughs> going on in there just to, to try it all because it's all kind of different. So that's what the, that was the genesis of that story. And then I, I bought a copy of um, Michael Solomonov's Israeli Soul Cookbook. And he's the, he's the restaurateur of Zahav, the chef, and, and he owns the restaurant Zahav in uh, Philadelphia, which has gotten, I think, a James Beard Awards. And he's, he's, been, he's been very much honored with all kinds of, all kinds of awards. But anyway, he, he has a great cookbook that has that five-minute tahini, or excuse me, five-minute hummus in it. And I just kind of took off from there. So I've had a lot of, a lot of fun doing that. Now, Robin Cressingham at Zest tells me she's a, she's a hummus aficionado, way too much tahini, she said. So there you go. <laughs> it's a little bit like potato salad, I think. You know, everyone's got there. It is. I, I, I used to make hummus a lot for me and Kevin. Yeah, you got a, on a kick. I was on a kick for a while. Now I haven't made it in forever. <laughs> it's one of those things. What, what, how did you do yours? Chickpeas, tahini, uh, some lemon juice, some lemon juice, I think, and olive oil. Uh Of course, salt, pepper to taste. If I'm recalling off the top of my head, it's been so long since I've made it. Garlic. Yeah. Yeah. There seems to be there seems to be a a a a lot of a discussion whether you take the skins off the the chickpeas or you leave them on. So Uh. somebody had 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 uh, commented on mine that um, that. she would take, you know, she would rather get the, the skins off the chickpeas. And I thought, well, yeah, except for then it's not five minute hummus. I mean, I figure like right. another minute or two in the processor, it seems pretty, pretty smooth to me. So I just went with yeah. that. Is that the, the reason they say that? Because it's smoother? Yeah, apparently it makes it a little creamier or something, which I think I, I could see that if you don't process it enough. And, and I even did right. it when, you know, took the, took the dried uh, chickpeas, let them soak overnight and cooked them and made them just to see if that was going right. to be any different. And I thought, well, that's not even really that different than the canned version. Wow. So, right. And that's such a process. Yeah. yeah. It's fun to do that. I never, I never took the skins off. Yeah. Never. You know, it, it, it's interesting when I, um, kind of back to what you were saying about, you know, folding in the cheese and, and that kind of thing. I, I, I was always a fan when I, when I wrote for the times that the stories were kind of, you know, the kitchen warts and all, like if something went wrong, I always said it went wrong. You know, I never wanted right. to be like, there's just so much, there's so much out there where everything turns out perfect, right? Right. You, make things yeah. and, you know, you always feel so bad. You look at the photos and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, mine didn't turn out like that. And then after a while you realize, huh. mm, you know. So we had that happen last week. I, I, you know, just got the instant pot, I, I don't know, a couple months mm-hmm. ago. So I decided to make an instant pot pot roast and I followed the directions of the recipe and cooked it for an hour. And the potatoes and carrots were just completely falling apart. It was just <laughs> it was mush. a mush. And and so when we posted it, though, we said that. And I said I would I would do it for forty five minutes, not an hour, and not cut the chunks so small. You know, yeah. <laughs> and and I did the opposite a couple months ago. I way oversalted a dish and posted the food photos, and everyone's commenting, "Oh, that looks so beautiful! I bet it was so good." And I'm thinking, you don't know, I oversalted it. <laughs> yeah, that's so. Get, getting back to uh, USF for a second, sure. so w- one of your one of your graduate students, Haley Heyman, has been doing food writing and photography for us for over two years now. Right, yeah. right. I knew that she was. I knew that she was working for you. And I talked to her, or actually, I didn't talk, texted with her yesterday, and I asked her for a quote. Sure. And here it is. She says, "As a professor at USF, Janet Keeler." brought her real-life food and travel journalism expertise to the classroom, which inspired many students, including myself, to follow our passion. She showed me that it was actually possible to do what you love for work as long as you work hard for it and do your best every day. Wow. And she does. <laughs> yeah, you, are, you earned that one. It's a nice compliment. That's a very, very nice, nice compliment. compliment. And I, you know... I, it's it's tough out there for a lot of a lot of students that are studying media and studying journalism. You know, it's hard to know where you fit in right now. Things aren't in in one right. respect. The fields are so wide open. There's so much more to do. You know, when I graduated from college, you were working at a newspaper, radio station, TV station, maybe right. maybe a magazine, maybe that was it, pretty much. Now, you know, there's so many different ways to go. But the path just isn't as clear, so that's tough. But I do, I do, I, I, I appreciate that she recognized that because I do, do try to get them to think about 
you know, what they're passionate about. I mean, and to also remind them that what they're passionate about may not be what they're going to be working on the minute they graduate from, you know, the minute right. they get that degree, but they can keep working towards that, that things are possible for them. So that's a very, that was very nice of her to say that and recognize that. Yeah. And she does a great job for us. And, I, and we've seen her in that two years. She's really oh, grown. She's, I mean, she's, she's grown incredibly. I mean, yeah. I mean, her writing was good in the beginning. Now it's really, really good. And yeah. And she's doing videos where she's also helping manage our social media, our Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, I kind of tell. I, I'm I'm so glad to hear that because yeah, she was she was a great student, and I I'm always happy to have her uh, in class. But I like to hear that because I try. I also try to tell them that you know you're going to leave leave the university with a degree, but you're not going to stop learning. I mean, we're just getting you started. Yeah. You're going to get out there, and you know you're going to take those basic skills and really build on them. It's, it takes time for sure. It does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to be her father and I'm still learning stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Here we are. Podcasts and all. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So you've been, this was, I, I have one question that I asked Chris Sherman last week that I'm going to ask you the same question. Since you've been doing this for a long time, uh-huh. what are some of the biggest changes you've seen to food writing, the food scene and the American palate over the past decades and are they good changes or bad changes? So let's start with the let's start with the first one, which was what? Which what was the first one, Kevin? What did you say? Food, food writing. Oh, food writing. Well, I would say the change in that is that how much of it is how much is out there. There's so many people writing about food and in so many different ways. The technology has has changed everything. Uh, right. in, in media, it's just it's changed. It's changed so much. So that's um, I would I would say there's just more people writing about food. That said, there's a lot of people writing about food in maybe a way that's not. I don't want to say I don't want to exactly say unethical, but when you look at some of the some of the um, reviews that are out there on different. Well, maybe it's more of just kind of a buyer beware. You know, do you know who you're reading? Do you right. know, like for, for you guys, you guys have been doing this for a while. People know you. They kind of know your your aesthetic. They know your ethics, that kind of thing. But a lot of times when you read reviews, you don't know who, or you don't know who they're by. You don't know what they're, right. you don't know who's paying for them to eat. You don't know, you know, so, so that's kind of, that can be kind of, kind of rough because as you guys know there's no lack of opinions out there oh my god <laughs> right yeah yeah and there, there can be a lot of noise out there and there can be a lot of wondering what's real and what's not right yeah right totally so th- so that's one thing so i think there's more food writing i think there's more i would say there's a little bit more serious food writing too you know more mm-hmm. looking at serious consumer issues and serious uh, you know, food justice issues. Who has food? Who doesn't? Who has access to good food? Who doesn't? Those kinds of things. So that's right. I know that's come a long Laura's way. Laura's covering a lot of that for the post. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So, so I would say there's more. There's more interested in that interest in, in that area. Palette wise, wow. I think, especially if you look at like the students in my classes, stuff that maybe when we grew up would have seemed exotic or different. It's just every day to them. Their palates are so right. broad. They they're exposed to so many different so many different cuisines, and mm-hmm. they like so many different cuisines. So that's kind of cool. I think things aren't yeah, quite yeah, so. Very... Hmm, what's that? They're they're much more open to things, and they're used to it for sure. Yeah, when I was much younger, I was definitely considered an adventurous eater, mm-hmm. and with the, the way the American palates evolved. I'm probably not considered as much of an adventurous eater as I used to be because things that were considered adventurous back then are considered normal now. Yeah. Right. Take, take octopus, for example. Yeah. <laughs> right. I also think they're a little bit more, um, my students just am aware of, of more of the, the ethics of food. You know, I see obviously more vegetarians, more vegans, uh, right. whether they stay vegans throughout their lives, I don't know, but there's, Certainly, certainly more interest in that. Definitely. Right. Also talking about changes, and I just know this because I saw you posted it on Facebook, the Association of Food Journalists was sadly recently dissolved. I know. So that organization is 46 years old and it started, uh, you know, as a way to, to, 
you know, a professional organization for food writers. They, they were the first organization that came up with kind of a, a well, it wasn't kind of, but a code of ethics for, for mm -hmm. uh, restaurant critics. You know, they were looking very carefully at, you know, making sure that, you know, you weren't taking freebies and, and, and the way you pr approached your job. So that they, they, they uh, crafted those. Right. Then, or if you were getting a freebie, you had to mention it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually have that code of ethics bookmarked in my in my web browser. Oh, good, good. Yeah. So they so it was a very robust group for a long time. And as newspapers and it was very much a newspaper organization. So, you know, at that time there were a lot of newspaper food sections around the country, a lot of food editors. So as those numbers have started to dip, uh and you know this they would they struggled with this for for quite a while but the, the number of the, the membership was falling and they really mm -hmm. struggled on how to incorporate bloggers into it because bloggers aren't necessarily journalists so this idea mm -hmm. of the association of food journalists bloggers had a different they had a different mission you know they were entrepreneurs they were it was just it was just a different a different thing and right. so that world i think kind of passed them by you know by the time they really figured out that they needed to harness it, those bloggers already had their own groups. You know, there's, there's mm -hmm. right. blogging groups out there now and they have they have their own conferences and those types of things. And I think the money that supported AFJ came from dues from from the members and also from the contest, their their annual contest. So I think it just got to the point where, you know, it just wasn't tenable, I guess, anymore. Right. Right. Believe it or not, my, my next question is what's the difference between being a food journalist and a food blogger? <laughs> well, you know, journalism is, you know, a system of verification and reporting and reflecting what's going on in the society. I mean, we have our own you know, journalist, the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics. And a, a blogger might be just someone who's just talking about food. You know, that I'm not, if mm -hmm. I'm blogging about mm, recipes that I cook, I'm not really worried about the things a journalist is worried about. It's a different, it's kind of right. a different medium. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with it. Some bloggers are journalists, but I would say not all bloggers are. So, right. you know, it's commentary or opinion pieces, that kind of thing. It's a little bit, it's just a little bit different. Right. Yeah. So for this show, we try to keep things, you know, light and fun, and we do not discuss politics. However, I cannot pass this one up. Uh-oh. I saw in October 2019, you gave a talk on the immigrant cookbook. Foods that make America great. I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. Because it's taking like two two sides of the coin, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, it wasn't exactly a, the subtitle there. Foods that make America great wasn't exactly tongue in cheek, was it? It was more. It was more yeah. in your face I think, on <laughs> yes. that one. But, I, but I, the reason I gave that talk was I had noticed that cookbook uh, with the foreword from Jose Andres, who I know you know from World Central Kitchen and his his big restaurants and everything it was just one of a number of cookbooks I had noticed had come out last year. There's another one called, uh, I think it's called La Cocina. It's about a, an organization in San Francisco that provides space for immigrant women to make their food that they're going to sell either from food trucks or in carts or, you know, pop-up kind of things. There were a number of cookbooks mm -hmm. out like that, about five. And I thought, isn't this interesting? You know, if you look at cookbooks as a as a way to judge what's going on in society, clearly there was some uh, backlash or response to the Trump administration's sort of anti-immigrant mm -hmm. right. rhetoric. And so these cookbooks, people that wrote them felt a need to say, hey, we're immigrants and we're here and we've contributed to your society. We've contributed to the yep. culture. We're Americans. So um, there were a number of cookbooks that came out like that. So that's why I did that. That's, that's why awesome. I did that talk. It was, quite a, it was quite interesting to see. You can often see, and I... I really miss that about being at the Times. You know, the cookbooks just come in. They just come rolling right. in from these publishers. So you can get a good idea, though, of what's out there, what's what's going on. Um, one year, this was kind of at the height of the Rachel Ray time with the 30-minute meals mm -hmm. and all that. Uh, we noticed at the, at the paper, we were getting a lot of cookbooks that were, like, timed. You could make dinner in 15 minutes. You could make mm -hmm. dinner in 20 minutes. You could make dinner in 30 minutes. So I had a stack of them. So Laura Riley and I split them. And I said, let's let's see. Let's pick a couple of these cookbooks and see if we can do the recipes. And she has a culinary degree. So she she's and she's worked in restaurants. So, so she's she's got more chops in that in that respect than I do. 
but I cook a lot at home and these were for home cooks. So neither of us could really do any of the recipes. <laughs> uh, that's funny. I had turned on the the timer and, you know, by 28 minutes, I'm starting to sweat a little bit. Yeah. Everything, and I thought, my gosh, why do we have to cook in 30 minutes? But um, so that was just a trend. I just use that as an example of trends in cookbooks where we were able to, to come up with a story off of that. And it was kind of fun. And it was a fun way just to say, you know, relax a little bit. You're, you're not going to be able to make everything in 30 minutes. We've discovered that ourselves. When, yeah. when we see the prep or the time that it says on a recipe, I'm like, this is taking us twice as long as it says yeah. it's going to take. Yeah. I always have to double that time just to, to know. <laughs> Janet Keeler, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Oh, I had a great time talking to you. It's always always nice to, to compare notes with uh, fellow foodies. Yes. yes. It's been a blast. <laughs> This is Chris Walker, and you're listening to CP Foodies Podcast. New on the website, we have the new recipe that we talked about at the top of the show for an elevated twist on a BLT with basil mayo. We are working on some new stuff for you for September, including new reviews for Tiki Docs, Wild Child, Urban Stillhouse, Book and Bottle, and a review of the new menu from the new chef at Trist that drops at the end of the month. All of that is coming up this month on stpetersburgfoodies.com. September is kind of like Tampa Bay Times Alumni Month here for the podcast. Last week, we had Chris Sherman. You just heard Janet Keeler. And next week, we'll be talking to Laura Riley, former food critic at the Times, and for the past year and a half, the food business reporter at the Washington Post. If you'd like to send us fan mail, hate mail, or if you have any requests for interviews or restaurant reviews, just send an email to info at stpetersburgfoodies.com. That's it for this episode of the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our guests, Janet Keeler and Abby Allen. And thanks to our sponsors, Roland Oates, The Zest Podcast, Noble Crust, Booyah Ramen, and, and Engine, Engine Number nine. 9. Our announcer is Candace Aviles from Meet the Chef and Channel 10 News. And our theme music is provided by the Chris Walker Band. We'd like to remind you to check out all the latest restaurant reviews, foodies news, top 10 lists, and updated happy hours on stpetersburgfoodies.com. Please give us a rating and review on whichever app you're using to listen to the show. And remember to share the show with your foodie friends. Until Until next time, time, may your food be hot and your bubbly cold. How are you all taught to handle rude people? In the back of the house, uh, very undiplomatically. That's why they keep us in the back of the house. (laughs) That's the waiter's job.